1994, the Walt Disney Company gave us an animated epic that 25 years later is still a fan favorite. In 2019, Heaven Hill gives us a single barrel bourbon worth a gold medal. The movie is The Lion King. The whiskey is Henry McKenna. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are looking at the 1994 animated classic, The Lion King. The Lion King. I'm so excited to talk about this movie, Brad, because I am pretty sure this is the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Really? My grandma took me to this. I don't remember it. Yeah. But I remember like bits and pieces. I remember walking out of the theater you know, this movie came out 1994, so I was like three and a half years old at the time. Yeah. Brad, you were probably about the same age. This movie was such uh, an integral part of our childhood. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine a world where The Lion King did not exist. Yeah. The Lion King is one of those movies that everybody owned. Everyone as a kid owned. in the 90s. Yeah. When, when they released this movie... Uh, on VHS, it broke like every home box office record. It was for a long, long time the best selling video ever. Yeah. For all the parents out there today that are tired of hearing Moana and Frozen, like parents of the 90s yeah. got tired of The Lion King. You know what's really funny is I, I was watching Toy Story a few months ago. The original. The original from yeah. 95. And there's a scene where um, when Andy's family is moving away in the van that they're sitting in, they're playing Hakuna Matata. Yeah. Like Pixar was even referencing then how everyone had this movie. Everyone had the soundtrack. It was everywhere. Yeah. And this was before Pixar was owned by Disney, right? Yeah. Well, so Disney always released Pixar's movies, but they weren't like a merged corporation uh, at this okay. point. But yeah, e even then, like you were seeing references to how popular The Lion King was. Yeah. And the crazy thing is Disney, I don't think ever expected this movie to be anything. I mean, they put a lot of resources in it. I'm sure they were expecting it to be a hit. You know, they don't release movies that they don't want to make money on. But yeah. like, I don't know if they were anticipating this level of recognition. Yeah. So uh, this this is one of those movies where I don't feel like I need to ask Brad, did you see this before this podcast? We've probably <laughs> each seen this movie like 50 times. Yeah, easily. Brad, as you went into this movie, you know, with a more objective, critical eye this time knowing that we're comparing it to these other movies. Did you have any expectations? Did you have any fears that maybe you wouldn't like it as much when you were watching it with the critical eye? You know what? Going into the movie, I was just excited. Yeah. I haven't seen The Lion King in a really long time. But yeah, no, I was really excited to watch it. I don't know if I was worried about it in any way. So uh, we you throw this movie on, and I love the way this movie starts. It's so bold. It's so... It's so immediate in the way that it hits you. You know, I, I Disney had really gotten back to prominence in the late 80s with The Little Mermaid. And then they followed that up uh, with Beauty and the Beast, which became the first film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. It was like their crowning achievement. They followed that up with Aladdin, which was not as well received critically, but was a huge, huge hit. And then they released The Lion King. And The Lion King, I think, was them trying to top Beauty and the Beast artistically, musically, in terms of the epic scale of it. Yeah. And the way that this movie hits you right from the beginning, it's it's making a statement. You know, yeah. Beauty and the Beast starts with that nice fairy tale 
uh, narration. Right. This movie's like, you see it says Walt Disney Presents, and then the first thing is that sunrise and the African singing. Yes. That's, it's unfamiliar to us, you know, English-speaking people, and you're immediately put into the savannah, and you are fully immersed right from the get-go. Yeah, the thing about the opening scene is that not only do you have that epic you know, song and the presentation of Simba. But then following that, you have just the the screen goes black and you just get this, the title card, just boom. And, and it even has that like bass hit. Yeah. And you're just like, oh man, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. the That opening song is its own sort of like montage music video. It is like a short film unto itself. Yeah. And I honestly think that the Circle of Life movie if you yeah. were just take those three minutes out, it's one of the best Walt Disney films I've ever seen. It tells so much of a narrative with zero dialogue. Yep. You understand exactly what's going on. And I want to talk about Circle of Life at length. But in order to do that, we need to set up the movie. And so for anyone out there who hasn't somehow seen The Lion King, if you've been living under a rock for 25 <laughs> years, we're going to offer you our service. Brad explains The Lion King. All right. I don't know. Go read Hamlet. There is a lion. He is a king. <laughs> yeah. The end. The end. So the Lion King is about a young lion named Simba, who is the, I guess he'd be the prince. Sure. So he's the son of the current king, James, I mean, Mufasa. <laughs> Darth Vader. Darth Vader. <laughs> uh, so he's the son of the current king. His uncle wants to be the king, but because lions are very, you know, formal, like an English aristocracy. <laughs> He will not become the king, and Simba is going to become the king because he's the son of the king and all that. Scar is very upset about this, and so he kills Mufasa and runs Simba off the land, and he takes over, and then the rest of the story is about how Simba has to deal with his failures and come back to become the king. Absolutely. Yeah, so this movie has tons of political intrigue, mm -hmm. but what I love about the way that it's captured isn't just that it's you know the fight for the throne. It's about duty. It's about responsibility. There's this undercurrent throughout the movie of this sort of like spiritual cosmic nature of things and how things have to be in the right order. And when disorder comes in the form of Scar taking the throne, you know, the, the savanna dies, there's a drought. And when Simba regains his throne at the end of the movie, all of the vegetation comes back. There's this really Just out of nowhere. Yeah, there's this really interesting undercurrent that. You know, you have to take your place in the circle of life. You have to fulfill your role in the community. And only when you're doing that is the whole community blessed. So there's like this this uh, philosophy underlying the whole movie. It's not just a political thriller. And that's really what I love about it. Yeah, it's the idea that things in wor in the world, whether it's, I mean, essentially... The animals represent humans. They are free agents morally. They make their own choices. But the only time that anything in nature will thrive is when it is acting in the way that it was created to act. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the whole idea of the circle of life is that we have a place in society that we should fulfill. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance as king... You need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures, from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Dad, don't we eat the antelope? Yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. And so, we are all connected 
in the great circle of life. Yeah, for sure. And there's no better representation of that than in the opening circle of life number. And I said we were going to get back to talking about this. I want to walk through that thing like bit by bit, because like I said, it is a masterful piece of filmmaking. You get that sun, the sunrise and the song starts and you don't quite know what's going on. And you start to see these animals poke their heads up over the hills of the savannah. And there's these really bright, bold colors like that. This morning, I even noted as I was watching it, there's a cheetah and behind the cheetah is just like this like really bright orange sky. Yeah. And they're hitting you immediately with these super bold colors. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it kind of calms down. It gets more subtle. You see all these birds start to fly out of like the river banks and what they do with color, what they do with camera movement, with focus. It is such a great piece of visual storytelling. And that the interesting thing for me is that like, first off, this is our first animated film we've talked about. Which is crazy to me. Well, as it should be, I think. Yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. The Lion King is very worthy of our top spot as we should talk about this animated sure. film. Sure. But the, the interesting thing about animated films is that I think people hear animated and they just think a child. You know, like this is a children's movie. Right. And they, and they stop thinking critically about the movie. And they stop thinking critically about like, well, how is the camera movement in this movie? Right. How, you know, what are the what are the choices that the director is making as far, as far as visual style and coloring? And the interesting thing about animated films is that you have so many more choices because you could have so many different art directors on how it's how it's drawn, yeah. how it's colored, the the palette that you're going to use, and you can make those choices in a live action movie. But you're a little bit more limited almost than you can do anything. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing is we should almost look at animated movies with a more critical eye because you're not bound by the limitations of of physics or anything like you can reality. Exactly. You can make whatever you want. So every frame that's up on the screen was a purposeful choice that the director made. And so that's part of why I hate. That's part of why I hate the argument that it's just a kid's movie. Yeah. Like when you talk to somebody about a really bad kid's movie. The the comeback always is like, it's Boss just a baby. kid's movie. Boss baby. <laughs> it's just a kid's movie. Like I put my kid down in front of the TV and it kept, you know, him or her occupied for an hour. That's not that's not what a movie's about. You it's know? not. And I have a toddler. And yes, like there have been times where we just pacify him with something that he likes to watch on TV. But when you go into a film and you're looking at it as a work of art and there's something wrong with it, it's worth pointing out. Well, and I also think that what does that say about how we view children? Exactly. That we go, oh, we'll just give them some subpar movie. Like, why should, why don't they deserve works of art Absolutely. to be pacified with? Well, and we also, we don't acknowledge that kids know crap when they see it. Yep. If you've ever taken a kid to a bad kids movie, they get bored. They're running around the theater. They're not paying attention. You walk out of the theater. And the thing I love about kids is that there's no filter. They'll tell you yep. that that was a bad movie. We think that anything that's made for a three-year-old, a five-year-old, is good enough for them. But even at a young age, people can tell crap when it's presented to them. And beautifully enough, they didn't really say that at all about 90s Disney movies. No, they really they didn't. they hit their stride. They really did hit their stride. And in a lot of ways, the animation in this movie is the pinnacle of what Disney had been doing. Right. You know, with Beauty and the Beast, they finally introduced some computer animation. If you watch the big uh, ballroom scene... Yeah, the Beauty and the Beast song. All the backgrounds are computer animated. Okay, but you can tell now in 2019, it's a very rudimentary computer image. And I feel like in this film, even in the three years that it was between Beauty and the Beast and Lion King, 
the the computer animation that they use to help this movie out, it really is seamlessly blended in, you know, and they're doing such cool things in the circle of life uh, montage. There's this one shot where it starts out with the, the focus is very close on a tree branch and there's ants crawling across it. Yeah. And then they rack focus to the back and to the background and it's zebras marching. And it's just like you get these shots that Disney wasn't doing before this. Right. And then the animals come up over the hill and we get this beautiful sweeping shot that follows Zazu as he flies towards Pride Rock. And yeah. you get the reveal of Pride Rock, which is basically the king's throne. I mean, it's even shaped like a seat. There need I I just want Pride Rock to be a real place. I do too, man. So bad. It's so cool. And the way that they're telling this story visually. You see that all of the animals in the savanna are making some sort of pilgrimage or something big happening. And then you see Pride Rock. And as we get closer and closer, we see the Lion King there on Pride Rock. And you don't even know his name yet. You don't know who Mufasa is, but you can tell. You haven't heard the sweet, sweet tones of James Earl Jones. Jones. But you still know exactly who he is, what his role is, and why the other animals are kind of paying deference to him it's good storytelling it really is just period yeah you you don't have to give dialogue necessarily to give exposition on the story absolutely and you know we have to go back to that moment where Rafiki lifts Simba up Mm. baby Simba to anoint him essentially you know to present him as the future king and what they do is there's three or four quick cuts where they repeat the same movement making the upward movement of lifting Simba and they show it from like three different angles Splice, splice, splice. And it emphasizes that this baby is going to be something special. Right. I just that his place in the circle of life is to be the savior. Yeah. But what I love about it is the way they do that with film language. You don't need dialogue to show you that. It's just let's show you three quick cuts and you're absolutely going to get that this kid is what the whole movie's about. Right. So, Brad, I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question about Mufasa. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know really anything about lions or their pride. Right. But it seems to me that when they show the inside of Pride Rock where all of Mufasa's concubines are sleeping, Mufasa is the only male and he's got like 15 concubines, right? Yeah. So, first of all, what makes Simba's mom, Sarabi, the queen? Yeah. And also, does that mean that like all of the lion babies are Simba's half-siblings? Like, is Nala technically Simba's half-sister? The, see, the, and this is one of those points where part of me is like... <laughs> I don't care, but it was just like, right. I, didn't, I didn't notice it till this time around. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess there really wouldn't be any other males. Yeah. I mean, Scar's around, yeah. but we have no indication that Scar is, like, sleeping with any other lions. He's not like, getting any. He's not breeding, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's one of those things where you're... I don't know, what's what's it called when you, like make an animal seem human-like. Oh, yeah. Uh, anthropomorphize, anthropomorphize it. it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the end, they're a bunch of animals. I mean, maybe that happens in yeah. the animal kingdom. Because the, the males get driven off, from what I know about lion pride. Yeah. The males get driven off once they become of age and they find their own pride. Yeah. But, like, the females can stay. They still they hang around, yeah. So if he's having more children with his daughters... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I don't know how this works. We're yeah. off topic. It was just a if thought that I had. If any of you out there in the Film and Whiskey crew listening is like a zoologist. Just just genetics in general. Genetics in general. Yeah. yeah give us a call. Hit us up because this is, this is a burning question that <laughs> yeah, I need we, answered. We want to know. So let, let's change topics before we get into more genetics. 
it is impossible to overstate how important this movie is to the Walt Disney Corporation. Right. Like, you know, they they had they'd come back to prominence again, but they had just never done anything like this movie before. And I think now in the post Lion King wake, we've seen them take on stories from other cultures and present them respectfully. But pre Lion King, it's really all just fairy tales, Caucasian European fairy tales. Yeah. And now they're like, we're going to make a movie about the African Savannah, and it's going to be infused with African tribal spiritism and religion. And yeah. Brad, you actually had brought up a point about how unique this movie was in the history of Walt Disney as well. Interestingly enough, this was actually kind of considered a filler movie in between years for like inside the Walt Disney Corporation. They kind of had this sense that any movies that was focused on animals was kind of a subpar, like, yeah, we're just going to use this as a filler movie. And if you were working on movies that had humans as the main characters, those were like the main movies. And you Hmm. you you think about all those types of movies. And so The Lion King was kind of filler, in a sense, that was leading up to Pocahontas. Like, all of their money was going into Pocahontas at this point. That was going to be their next big hit. And Pocahontas is a great movie, but it's no Lion King. No. You know what I mean? No. And so the, the interesting thing is they didn't actually expect this to be very big because it wasn't based on any source material. This was Disney's very first ever movie that was completely their own intellectual property. Interesting. It wasn't based on any stories. It wasn't, you know, like you were saying, they just kind of based it on ideas of African culture. Right. And they didn't base it on any actual legit source material. Well, it seems like they based it a little bit on Hamlet. I mean, so, so, yes, they kind of did, but they didn't come onto that until later in the process. Oh, interesting. Originally, Scar was not supposed to be a member of the family. He wasn't supposed to be Mufasa's brother. He was supposed to be a lion that was just roaming the plains and wanted to get in on the goodness that mm-hmm. was Pride Rock, and he wanted to steal the throne. And then somebody mentioned, they were like, oh, well, what if we made Scar Mufasa's brother? And they were like, oh, that would kind of make it a Hamlet thing. Hmm. And they actually went as far as when Scar throws Mufasa off of the cliff. You know, spoiler spoiler alert. (laughs) They actually were going to have him say the line, good night, my sweet prince. Oh, interesting. From From, Hamlet. Hamlet, And they were like, that's too on the nose. No, that's way too much. And they actually pulled back that and a few other Hamlet references. Interesting. And so, yes, it kind of does reference, reference Hamlet, but they definitely tried to be slightly innocuous about it. So in the years since this movie came out, there has been a lot of pushback on the idea that this was Disney's intellectual property because there was a Japanese anime called Kimba the White Lion. Oh. And the the theory goes that they basically stole the entire story of this movie Kimba, made him Simba. <laughs> and like if you if you seriously go online, go to YouTube, look up Kimba the White Lion, the whole story is essentially the Lion King. Like he is next in line. There's a character I think named Scar. It seems like too much of a coincidence that they didn't know that it existed. Bob, the Walt Disney Company has done no wrong. Ever. Ever. They've never done anything to anybody. But look, uh, the, the sketchy origins of Lion King aside, this is, I mean, it's a landmark movie in the history of animation. And I want to talk just quickly about my favorite vocal performance in the whole movie. Okay. Now, Everyone remembers James Earl Jones. Yeah. With, I mean, and rightfully so. Yeah. The character of Mufasa, you could not have found a better voice actor to teach the life lessons that Mufasa teaches than James Earl Jones. Right. But I am convinced 
having watched this like 40 times with my toddler now, that the best, most important voice actor in the movie is Jeremy Irons as Scar. Without Scar, without a perfect villain, this movie does not work. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, they show the title card for The Lion King after Circle of Life. And the first thing you see is Scar toying with a mouse that he found, talking about how he'll never be king. I I was also interested, though, the very opening line of the movie. Yeah. Other, you know, obviously they sing at the start about Circle of Life. But the opening line of dialogue is Scar holding a mouse saying, I don't remember the exact line, but he basically says, life's not fair. Life's not fair. Yeah. And I, I think that's interesting because the whole the whole philosophy of the circle of life is that if you live life and if you if you run in your own lane and you follow your purpose in life, yep. then life is fair. Absolutely. And and the proper things result from that. Yeah. Life's not fair, is it? You see, I well I shall never be king. <laughs> and you shall never see the light of another day. <laughs> Adieu. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play with your food? What do you want? I'm here to announce that King Mufasa's on his way. So you'd better have a good excuse for missing the ceremony this morning. Oh, now, looks as if you've made me lose my lunch. Ha! You'll lose more than that when the king gets through with you. He's as mad as a hippo with a hernia. Ooh, I quiver with fear. And Scar literally counters that philosophy with the very first line of dialogue. And you know right away that he's the bad guy. Yeah. And what they do as filmmakers is they put you in the presence of the bad guy before there's any other characters around. And you, I don't want to say you sympathize with him, but you understand all of his motivations right off the bat. And it's in a lot of ways, Scar is the star of the movie. I mean, because Mufasa dies halfway through, Scar's still around. Yeah. And... Scar is the only one that that takes you from the beginning to the end of the film. And I really do think that Jeremy Irons voice work cannot be underrated here or understated. He is like hamming it up, hardcore chewing scenery left and right. And I kind of wish that I could see a a video of him recording in real life, just in a room, because the way that he says his lines, like people don't actually talk like that. Right. When Zazu first comes in and, and confronts him and says Mufasa's on his way, he has this great... I quiver with fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, when you think about it, no one would actually say that line that way. He's having a good, a grand old time recording this. Yeah. But it absolutely works for what this movie needs that villain to be. So can I tell you my big struggle with this watch through? Yeah, let's hear it. And, th- and this is one of those things where I'm like, this isn't the fault of the movie in any way. It's just my personal struggle. And it's kind of related to like just growing up and becoming an adult. I struggled so much with this movie because I knew who all the voice actors were. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And the reason I like Scar so much is because to be completely honest, like I know the name Jeremy Irons, Mm -hmm. but for me, he doesn't have a pivotal movie that I've seen. Oh, interesting. Where I'm like, oh, that's Jeremy Irons. Whereas like James Earl Jones, I've seen him in enough different things that I'm like, when I hear Darth Vader talk, I hear James Earl Jones talk. When right. I hear Mufasa talk, I hear James Earl Jones talk. I get that. And I so mean, in in the early 90s, Jeremy Irons, he wasn't like the most famous actor in the world, but he was really well known and respected. He had right. won an Oscar uh, for best actor. So like really? people knew who he was. I would kind of compare him in a lot of ways to Daniel Day-Lewis now. Yeah. Not maybe not as respected because Daniel Day-Lewis is like the best ever to do it at this point. But 
in terms of name recognition, people know who he is. They might not be able to say like, oh, I remember him from this film. Yeah. But he was well-known-ish. Yeah. And so there's there's almost that loss of innocence that I kind of felt on this watch through of The Lion King where I was like, oh, that's Matthew Broderick and Jonathan Taylor Thomas right. and James Earl Jones. And, but with Scar, I didn't know his voice well enough that I was just like, oh, this is Scar. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I love I totally get that. And that's part of my concern with this remake that they're making that's going to come out in a couple months is that they loaded it so full of recognizable names and voices that I worry that. I'm just going to be hearing Seth Rogen. I'm not going to hear Pumbaa. I'm going to hear Seth Rogen. And what really worries me about it is they recast James Earl Jones as Mufasa again, but they didn't recast Jeremy Irons as Scar. And the thing that I'm going to go into that movie wondering is, did they nail the villain? Because if they don't nail Scar, it's not going to be as good of a movie. It's just not. Yeah, the the way a villain is presented and who you choose as your villain is just as important yeah. as choosing your main protagonist. Absolutely. So, Brad, I want to talk a little bit about the first half of the movie, like leading up to Mufasa's death and Simba getting run out of the Pride Lands. Yeah, I feel like the movie can really be split. Uh, I would almost say into thirds. The well, first yeah. third, the second third with Timon and Pumbaa, and, and then, then the, the, the last the bit. Yeah. Um, pre-Simba getting booted out. Right. The first half of this movie, in my opinion, is incredible. It's There's so much tension. You know exactly what Scar's plotting. He sends Simba and Nala off to that elephant graveyard where they almost die. Yep. You know, you get Mufasa rescuing them, giving them life lessons, teaching Simba. And now Zazu tries to help rescue them, too. Yeah, and fails miserably. Don't forget to give Mr. Bean some credit. You get this wonderful foreshadowing where... Mufasa just randomly takes Simba out into the field and says, hey, look up at the stars. That's all our dead relatives. And that's the moment. If you've seen enough horror movies, you just know the second somebody is, I'll be with you forever. That's that's the second you know, like, that guy's about to die. Yep. Mufasa's going to get it. And he does in the very next scene. And he's going to bite the dust. That, oh, (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) That stampede sequence is a masterpiece of action cinema. Of horror cinema. Uh, Yeah, I mean, honestly, like it is, you are on the edge of your seat throughout that whole thing. And it goes to some really, really dark places. On this watch, when Scar comes up to Simba after Mufasa's dead, and Simba's crying, cuddling his dead father, this movie lays it on in a way that's like almost perversely dark. Like, I'm crushed as a viewer seeing that, that Scar has succeeded. And then Scar comes up and... And gaslights and guilt trips Simba into thinking he did it. And it's the psychological manipulation of a child is horrifying. Right. And that's the thing, too, is he's a kid in the movie. And I think that's one of the things for me that struck me about this movie is that they play the innocence of Simba so well. It's innocent, but it's also like that cocky arrogance where he doesn't understand that every time he's around Scar and he's like, I'm going to be the king. Right. He doesn't and that, understand. And that's, what I, and that's what I love about that is that they give a relationship between Scar and Simba that isn't just your normal protagonist antagonist role. They're family. Yeah. And, and in Simba's mind, this is Uncle Scar. Exactly. This is somebody that I trust and love and look up to, and I I trust him. Yeah. And so you, as the viewer who have a little more wisdom can look on that and say, uh, Scar is like manipulating you, Simba. Like yeah. he's trying to get you to go in the elephant graveyard. But then when you watch him manipulate Simba into thinking that he killed his father, that's horrifying. Yeah, it really is. And this movie really needed a shot of 
lightness after that. And that's where Timon and Pumbaa come in. And it is, it's com- it's comedic relief, but it's necessary comedic relief because I can't even imagine how some kids make it to that point of the movie because it gets so, so dark. Yeah. And it, and it really hits on some important psychological truths where like when people experience tragedies on that level yeah. of like, I killed my father. Yep. You do need a period of, I don't know if forgetfulness is the right word, Hmm. but like you genuinely need time before you go back and deal with what happened to you, what happened to your family. Absolutely. And I'm talking about like real life tragedy. Yeah. That you do need that lightness. A moment of respite almost. Yes. For sure. Well, I have some issues with Timon and Pumbaa. And I think that we should come back after the break and talk about everyone's favorite characters, Timon and Pumbaa, because y'all are going to hate me. I don't think they're bad, but I've got some issues with the second half of this movie. But Brad, before we get into that, let's pop the cork on this bottle of Henry McKenna. What do you say? The best bourbon in the world. All right. So today we are continuing our series Summer of Bourbon. This is week four. The Summer of Bourbon. (laughs) And we are finally, I think, hitting a peak here because we're trying Henry McKenna single barrel. Now, Henry McKenna has been very famous in bourbon circles for a long time because it's a really affordable, bottled and bond, 100 proof, single barrel bourbon. And it's it's always kind of flown under the radar. Like, Have, I have we explained bottled and bond? Yeah, bottled, so bottled and bond is a legal distinction. I think we did with the Evan Williams a long time ago, but let's, yeah. let's bring it back up again. Um, Bottled and bond means that it was barreled under government supervision. It's aged at least four years and it's bottled at a hundred proof. And that makes it better. I don't know if that makes it better. Cause we all know that the government, you know, does things better than private businesses. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this is bottled and bond. It's aged four years. It is a single barrel. For those of you who are interested, this is from barrel 6312. It was barreled in February of 09. If any of you out there have a bottle from the exact same barrel, we'll give you something for free. Yeah. Hit us up. Send us a picture. Send us a picture of you enjoying it. But so anyway, this is a uh, a pretty affordable single barrel. And people have loved Henry McKenna for a long time because it flew under the radar. People really appreciated the taste. I remember when I was in Kentucky, I asked a guy once, like, what's a good single barrel? And he's like, do you got to try this Henry McKenna? And interestingly enough, it will no longer ever fly under the radar. It's not. Because it is sold out everywhere because this past year at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, which is one of the biggest spirits competitions, um, it not only won best bourbon, it won best whiskey. It was competing against Rise. It was competing against Scott, like single malt scotches that cost thousands of dollars were competing against this. And in blind tastings, this whiskey, a $30 whiskey, beat every whiskey <laughs> that was submitted in the competition for best in show whiskey. That's insane. It is insane. And there's been a ton of pushback because people are like, hey, this is a really good $30 bottle of bourbon, but is it the best I've ever had? So right. the hype is real about this thing. If you can find a bottle, I would recommend getting it just to say you've done it. But Brad and I are going to take one for the team here and we're going to try it out and tell you what we think of this best in show bourbon. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? Bourbon. It's got a really strong alcohol-forward nose. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely hitting my palate. You might have heard me cough at one point. I had just taken a nice big whiff of it, and it just kind of it, it hit me hard. Underneath all that alcohol-forwardness, though, 
it's got these really good classic dark bourbon notes. It's just pure brown sugar, maple. Um, Brad, what else are you picking up besides the alcohol? It definitely has an oaky. I don't know. There's a woodiness to it. Oh, man. That just I I just caught. I don't know if you're going to catch this or not. Peanut butter. Ooh. It smells like it has a nutty smell. It I'm getting nothing but like when you open a fresh jar of peanut butter. Yeah, that's what I'm picking up on this. So if that helps you understand how dark and complex this bourbon is. So before we take a taste, Brad, what would you give it on the nose? I'm going to give it a seven on the nose. You know, it, I think it's really complex and interesting. It has this full body to the to the nose that I really enjoy. Yeah, I think I'll give it a seven and a half. It really does have that alcohol forward uh, characteristic to it. But once you start to look for things and once I detected like peanut butter, that's not something you smell on a bourbon all the time. It's, Th- yeah, it's really taken off. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's give it a sip. Ooh, that peanut butter. Are you getting it now? Yeah. It does have that like waxy, nutty flavor to it. Yeah. Um, Man, I'll tell you what. I have always struggled with bottled and bond bourbons. There's something about the bottling um, alcohol point that I like 90 proof bourbons. I like higher proof bourbons, but 100 proof bourbons have always been dicey for me. Right. I find them to be like really uh, bitter sometimes and astringent tasting. This one is... You can tell that there's a lot of alcohol in it, and it is like burning my esophagus on the way down. It's really, really warm after I swallow. The Kentucky hug is real. The the Kentucky hug. But it is not at all an unpleasant bourbon to drink. But that's not a bad thing. Mm -mm. It it hits you in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Brad, are you picking up anything else on the taste besides peanut butter? Right as it hits my tongue, you get the sweetness. Yeah. You kind of get that sweet caramely. And it's really on the back of the tongue that you get more of the deep-bodied, peanut buttery nuttiness. Yep, yep. What would you give the taste, Brad? I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Wow. I really like the taste of this bourbon. Yeah, I like it a lot, too. Again, the higher proof, you can taste that it has a higher alcohol content to it. But it still has those really deep, dark bourbon notes that I love. So I'm going to give it a seven on the taste. Brad, how about the finish? The finish has a little bit of bitterness on it. I don't. Did you notice that? Yeah, a bit. Just a hint of bitterness that I didn't care for. I don't know if there's just a little bit more rye in it, perhaps, sure. or what. But yeah, the finish isn't quite as good uh, because of that bitterness. But you still are getting that taste of the peanut butter that just hit the back of your tongue. Yeah. So I'm going to give the finish about a seven. Yeah, I think I'm with you on the finish. You know, we talk about the Kentucky hug, this, you know, this idea that it warms you going all the way down. This was a little harsh post swallow. You know what I mean? Like the finish was harsher than I'm used to. And um, I don't necessarily care for that. Right. Because it wasn't like it left a lingering taste in my mouth as much as it just made its presence known like all the way down to my stomach. For sure. So I'd give it a seven as well. And then overall balance, Brad, what are you thinking about Henry McKenna? I think it has really good balance. There's a good nose that leads you to the notes you would expect on the tasting and on the finish. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it an eight on balance. Yeah, right. I think I'll do the same. It lets you know right up front, this is going to be a, a harsher alcohol forward, hundred proof bourbon. And it packs a punch all right. the way through. But those wonderful notes of peanut butter are present all the way through. Um, if you like a, a little bit higher proof bourbon, then you're in for a treat with this one. I'm going to give it an eight for sure. And then we get into the most important category value. value. Yeah. So 
with this bottle, it is a $35 bottle. Yeah, in the state of Ohio, this bottle costs $34.99. But we also have to factor in, at the very least, for the next, I would say, about six months to a year. Oh, at least. This is going to be hard to find. Yeah. And that honestly factors into value, because not only are you going to spend $35, but you actually will have to spend time trying to find this bourbon. Right. So, with that in mind, what would you give this uh, uh, score and value? Yeah, that's it's really hard for me to say, because prior to it winning this award, I thought it was a little overpriced at $35. Yeah. I would say 30 would be a perfect price point, but it was already at 35 Then it wins the award. And from there, it really just depends on what you're looking for. If you're expecting that you're going to actually have the world's best bourbon in your hand, not the world's best bourbon, the world's best, the, the world's whiskey. best whiskey in your hand, then you're going to be disappointed at any price point because I just don't think this is the best whiskey I've ever had. Yeah. However, if you want to be able to tell your friends, I got my hands on a bottle that won best in show whiskey for, for 35, 35 bucks. That's good value. I mean, if you ever want to impress someone that comes over to your house and doesn't know a ton about whiskey, you can say, hey, man, I've got this bottle on my shelf. It's the best whiskey in the world. Would you like some? Yeah. And only you have to know you spent $35 on it. Right. If it's worth it to you to try it, then I would say it's a great value. But I can't take into account the gold medal because right. it's not going to win the gold medal every year. Well, and you've said this off air. They might have just had a single phenomenal barrel of this. Yeah. We don't know because our barrel number 6312 or whatever it was. Yeah. Is different than the barrel that they tried exactly for the world's competition in right. San Francisco, right? So, un and that's unfortunate. It really is. So, if you just factor in Henry McKenna pre gold medal, I think thirty five is a little pricey. Okay, I do think this is a darn good bourbon. Yeah, and for a middle shelf bourbon in that twenty five to forty dollar range, it's worth having on your shelf. I will give it a seven and a half on value. I was literally going to give it the exact same thing. I, I think seven and a half is a, it, it's a good value. It's not perfect value. It's a little bit overpriced pre gold medal, post gold, gold medal. If you can find it for $35, that's a really good value. Mm -hmm. So what does that bring you out to Bob? That brings me out to a 37 out of 50. Brad, what does that bring you to? 38. 38. So we're at a 37 and a half. This is nearing, you know, our upper tier of whiskeys. We've literally said recently, we're like, man, I'm just waiting for a bur for any of our whiskeys to hit that 40 mark. Yeah. Like 40 out of 50, you are getting into some darn tootin' good whiskey. <laughs> darn tootin'. Yeah. That's right. This this is coming close to that, but it's not quite there. Would you recommend though? Yes. Oh, 100%. I yeah, I would it. definitely recommend. Um, I was at a, a bourbon bar a few weeks ago and they were doing shots of this for uh, $5. Oh, and that's I mean, if you can try it for five bucks, you absolutely need to do that. Yeah, go for it. So this has been Henry McKenna. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about the Lion King? Let's do it. All right. So that was Henry McKenna single barrel. That is just a darn good bourbon. That's it's really good bourbon. Man. And I can see like we kind of said in the review they might have gotten a phenomenal barrel of yeah. it, and that's why it won World's Best. Yeah. But for me, I think any barrel of it is going to be a really good bourbon. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we came out to a 37 and a half, yeah. which if you multiply that out to 100, that's, it's a 75 out of 100. That's, right. It's a really, really good whiskey. For sure. So let's get back into The Lion King, though. We were talking about, before we took a break, I think the second half of this movie falls off tremendously from the first half. Yeah. 
And part of it is, I think, the voice talent in the second half. I'm not a big Matthew Broderick as Simba guy. I was going to say, Matthew Broderick has kind of a a whininess that shouldn't be there in an adult. I mean, but it works for the character because he's kind of an oversized child for a long time. Yeah. But you're removing Jeremy Irons and James Earl Jones from the movie for 40 minutes, probably. A large portion of the movie. Yeah, and you're left with Matthew Broderick and Timon and Pumbaa. And I think that Timon and Puma's voice acting was perfect. Oh, they're phenomenal. Nathan Lane steals the show in the yeah, second half for of the sure. movie as Timon. But my my issue with Timon and Pumbaa. So, you know, Simba goes off into the desert, basically, and he's about to die of, of thirst and starvation. Right. Timon and Pumbaa come and pick him up. They get, you know, the classic Hakuna Matata song. Right. I can't knock Hakuna Matata, even yeah. with the fart jokes. Like, it's still, it's just so much fun. Yeah. What bothers me about... Timon and Pumbaa's characters is that the script takes a turn from this really respectful, austere writing to like, let's make pop culture references. And I think, I think what, what Bob's trying to say is it was very enclosed within the frames of the movie. Yeah. Like it was, it was really respectful to African culture. And then all of a sudden you've got Timon and Pumbaa singing the lion sleeps tonight You've got Timon and Pumbaa. You know, Pumbaa at the end of the movie says, uh, makes a reference to In the Heat of the Night. They call me Mr. Tibbs and comes in and says, they call me Mr. Pig. And it kind of takes you out of the world of the movie because you're like, wait, has Timon and Pumbaa been watching American cinema from the 1960s? Like, why are they singing The Lion Sleeps Tonight? Why are they doing the hula? Isn't the hula something that happens in Hawaii and not Africa? Right. It just, it pulled me out of the movie a little bit. And I think... You don't need those things to make their characters incredibly funny because you're talking about eliminating maybe 30 to 40 seconds of the film. And to me, it you're kind of cheapening what you want to do with your comic relief when you go for the really lazy, easy to make pop culture joke. That's part of why like the Shrek movies don't hold up for me. They make so many references to the Matrix or things that young people today might not recognize. Right. And when the whole point of it is to recognize it, then your jokes failed. You can make a funny joke that holds up for years and years. You know, we've watched some like it hot that holds up 60 years later yeah, because it's not bogged down in references to 1959 or in the course of the movie, 1930 something culture. culture. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know though, because there's certain elements like you, you mentioned them singing in the jungle. Yeah. That like, that's something that we will understand forever. Sure. I don't ever see that song going out of the public consciousness. And so for me, Watching the movie, I didn't have that sense at all. Hmm. Nothing about the pop culture references or the hula threw me from the culture of the movie. And I think it's because they set up Timon and Pumbaa as the comic relief. Yeah. That it didn't bother me when they used things that weren't of African culture for comic relief. Yeah, I get that. I think part of it, too, is that in the first half of the movie, there's no comic break from the tension. Yeah. When Simba is confronting Scar at the end of the movie, I feel like we need to be there in that confrontation. And then to keep cutting away to these characters doing the hula, it doesn't put me on the edge of my seat the way the first half of the movie does. See, I think I, I think you might be being a little unfair to it, though, because that happens once. Yeah. Like, they travel. So Simba runs into Rafiki. Right. And he's reminded of who he is. He talks to his dad in the stars. Yep. And then he travels back. Right. And he runs into Nala. And then he finds out that that Timon and Pumbaa are with her. Yep. And they say, all right, well, what's the plan? Right. 
what am I going to dress and drag and do the hula? Yeah, yeah. And then that scene happens. And then the rest of the movie is super serious. Yeah. But even then, like you've got Timon and Pumbaa charging the hyenas and knocking them over like bowling pins. Like there's still that comic relief. And, yeah. And I just I don't know. I feel like it could have been done better. I'm not saying it's bad. Like, obviously, this movie's not yeah. bad. But Timon and Pumbaa, there are some things that they give them to do in the script that I feel like, all right, you probably could have trimmed that little bit out. See, I think that there's something endearing about those scenes, though, that I wouldn't remove them from the movie. I think they add to the movie. I mean, this is the sign of a great movie when you're nitpicking on the level right. that I'm nitpicking. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not talking about huge structural changes to the movie that need right. to be made. We're talking about, like, these 30 seconds bothered me. Yeah. You know? And I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> also, you're talking about when Simbo's running back to Pride Rock. I've always wondered, like, he must not have gone that far because he I runs back the in the thing. course of, like, one afternoon. And yeah. He's, and and we're to believe that when Scar is sending all the females out scavenging for food, that they've just never made it that far. But well, they made it seem like when Nala gets there, I that's honestly that's one of the things about the movie I realized. I'm like, why was Nala really out there? Because initially I thought it was she was hunting for food, right? But then she said it's I was going to get help, right? Who well, does I she think, know outside of Pride Rock that would help her? I, maybe she was looking for another Pride of Lions, and she was just like going out under the guise of trying to find food. Okay. But Simba did not do a great job of running away, because he clearly makes it back to Pride Rock I in mean, like three hours. he was also a hours. small child. That's fair. He couldn't have gone too far. That's, you know, that's, that's probably <laughs> true. So, Brad, I want to I talk about something that you referenced in the first half of the show, which was this idea of the circle of life and fulfilling your responsibility. Right. And I really do think that this movie does a beautiful job at calling people to their place in community. Because what Disney movies do a lot is they fall into that trap of whatever you want as an individual is what you deserve. Right. And if you work hard for it, you're going to... It's it's this very Americanized attitude. The rugged individualism. But... What I love about the way this movie treats the African culture that it's dealing with is that it's all about, no, you're a part of a much larger thing that's going on. You're a, a cog, you know, and I don't want to make it, make it sound machine-like, but you're, you're just one part of a bigger picture, and we all serve a purpose in the circle of life. We've really needed you at home. No one needs me. Yes, we do. You're the king. No, we've been through this. I'm not the king. Scar is. Simba, he let the hyenas take over the Pride Lands. What? Everything's destroyed. There's no food, no water. Simba, if you don't do something soon, everyone will starve. I can't go back. Why? You wouldn't understand. What wouldn't I understand? No, no, no. It doesn't matter. Hakuna Matata. What? Hakuna Matata. It's something I learned out here. Look, sometimes bad things happen. Simba. And there's nothing you can do about it. So why worry? Because it's your responsibility. Well, what about you? You left? I left to find help. And I found you. Don't you understand? You're our only hope. Sorry. What's happened to you? You're not the Simba I remember. You're right. I'm not. Now are you satisfied? No. Just disappointed. You know, you're starting to sound like my father. Good. At least one of us does. But what worries me is that I feel like there's kind of these two competing narratives going on. On the one hand, you've got, you know, you need to become who you're supposed to be. You need to take your place in the circle of life. But then on the other hand, you have Nala coming back and telling Simba, like, Scar let the hyenas into the Pride Lands. And then that's what makes Simba upset. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, so is this culture racist? Is this a class structure where hyenas are not allowed to ever be in charge? And the fact that they would dare to right. mingle with lions is like some sort of offense? Like, I don't think that this narrative, this philosophy of the circle of life 
is perfect and it certainly has some issues. So this is my, I was literally thinking, I, I was going to say that I'm going to be the devil's advocate, but yeah. you've already started it for me. Oh, cool. My struggle with the philosophy of the circle of life is this idea that there is a, it's almost like there's this caste system mm-hmm. where you are only allowed to be what you are. Yeah. And you can never change. And if hyenas are scavengers on the edge of society that have to live on scraps and can never advance and become better, then that's who they have to be. And you're not allowed to try and to better advance yourself. Out of that. Yeah. You're not allowed yeah. to advance out of that. Yeah. It, it definitely falls apart when you try to pull it out and extrapolate it and apply it to real life. Right. One of the things that I love about the Lion King's philosophy, though, is I've seen it done now in other movies. So, like, I don't know if you've seen Black Panther yet, but Black Panther really reminds me of the Lion King in a lot of ways. And it's not just because it deals with African culture, but, it you know, you go to the land of your ancestors when when T'Challa goes into right. the ancestral plane and he talks to his dad, who was the king. He kneels before his dad. And my favorite line in the whole movie is when he looks at T'Challa and says, stand up. You are a king. Right. And and what that line does for people watching it in America, like young black males in America watching that movie, I feel like it fixes what Lion King got wrong, which is the implication in the Lion King is be who you are, but you can never advance. You can't not be a hyena. Right. Whereas the Lion King or whereas Black Panther was you are a king, but you need to realize it and you need to step up into it. It's the story of Simba without all the baggage in a way. But the interesting thing about Black Panther is... Michael B. Jordan's character yeah. does the exact same thing. He steps up and tries to be the king, and he's overthrown because of it. Because he's not destined to... So maybe it is closer to the Lion King than I remembered it being. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. In my mind, it's not every uh, person from Wakanda that is allowed to stand up and say, I am the king. It's that, only it's the only, king's that's son. That's very true. He is a part of that part of the circle All right, of life. Doctoral thesis on parallels between Lion yeah. King and Black Panther. Before we go, and I know we're winding down, we cannot get out of this episode without talking about, first of all, Hans Zimmer's score. Yes. When Simba is walking up Pride Rock in the rain at the end of the movie and he roars to announce that he's the king, that music with the drums, oh my gosh, talk about something that's inspiring. And compelling. Absolutely. For me, I think the most uh, emotionally tense moment of the movie is the stampede and it's simply created because of the music that Hans Zimmer yeah. composed. Yep. That scene, the music is so eerie yep. and, and it freaks you out and it takes you to a place where I don't care how many times you've seen the Lion King, you can't watch that scene and not just feel that sense of, Oh, uh, yeah. like there's something about that scene that without Hans Zimmer composing that, yep. it's nothing. Yep. And of course, Elton John's songs for this film are, are just, I mean, you know, and Elton was writing the melody and there was a lyricist writing the lyrics, but the, the combination of the way these songs advance the plot, tell a story. We talked about Singing in the Rain and how one of my issues with that movie on this watch was that the songs just don't advance the plot. Right. In, in this movie, you know, even a, a really funny, simple song like I Just Can't Wait to Be King that tells you a lot about Simba's character. Yeah. And even Hakuna Matata yeah. teaches him a life lesson that he uses to move forward from the tragedy. Absolutely. Which he ends up like dropping once right. he decides to be king. He rejects the Hakuna Matata philosophy. But right. at that point of the movie, it's super important. And yep. it helps us move the movie along. So, Brad, if you had to pick one 
song from this movie, best song in the film, what would you pick? From Elton John or from Hans Zimmer? Song. So Elton John. Okay. Like actual musical sung song. I would probably say Hakuna Matata. Oh, man. It's so good. It's so it's good. It's so fun. I, Can You Feel the Love Tonight is really good, but it's not my favorite. Yeah. it fe- That one feels super Elton John-y. Yeah, it's, it's a ballad. It's yeah. a ballad. I would say I, I can't get over Circle of Life just because I'm so used to watching the the visuals to go along with it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Hakuna Matata might be a better song, or I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Right. But like that first sequence will always be the pinnacle of this movie for me. I'm going to change my answer. I, I just can't wait to be king. Yeah. 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 I, that, I really think that that one, like you said, it advances the plot, but it's so catchy. Oh, for and sure. it's so, I don't know. There's something about that song that you just can't ignore. No, not at all. So Brad, if you had to give this movie a score, what would you give it? 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. The, like, out of all the animated films, I I would give another animated Disney film a 10 out of 10. And it would probably just be these two. But it would just be these two. It would be The Lion King, this other one that I'm sure we'll get to at some point, And I'm not going to spoil it now. I have a feeling that I know what it is. And I'm going to tell you what my, my score for this movie. I'm going to give it a 9.5. Yeah. I do think there's a couple small things that I would tweak about it. But it is so visually beautiful and breathtaking. And... In a lot of ways, the hand-drawn animation in this movie has never been topped. It's impeccable. I do think that I compare it a little bit to Beauty and the Beast. And Beauty and the Beast, in my mind, I mean, it, it follows the classic Disney formula. But I don't know if Disney has ever made a better, more polished, more efficient movie than Beauty and the Beast. And I think I'd give Beauty a 10 and I'd give this one a 9.5 just because I'm probably comparing the two. Yeah. But there you have it. I mean, I'm at a 9.5. Brad's at a 10. So we're coming out to a 9.75. Casablanca type story. Yes. This is a phenomenal classic movie. You're not going to hear us, you know, give this one a negative review. So you would say that Beauty and the Beast is the Casablanca of Of Disney animated films? films? Probably. Yeah. But we want to know what you have to say. So reach out to us on social media. Brad, where can they find us? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Film Whiskey. Whiskey with an E? With an E. With an E. We're not talking about scotch here. No. At Film Whiskey with an E. Or you could give us a call and leave us a voicemail. Our call-in line is 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. Next week, we will be back with another 25th anniversary special, the 1994 Quentin Tarantino classic. Pulp Fiction. We are taking a hard left turn <laughs> from, the, from Lion the Lion King. King into po- Children are not so welcome on next week's podcast. They sure aren't. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. Bye.